Hey, my name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to everybody joining us online as well and our online campus and uh, also to our microsite. I want a big shout out to you guys. And uh, man, I'm doing the handheld thing today. We've been having some microphone issues over the last couple of weeks. So we mailed that sucker back and uh, I'm going to try to not be presumptuous and just do like a mic drop at the end of service. So uh, before we kick things off today, I just want to let you know, every, the first Sunday of every month, we do something called First Step. And all that is, is if you've been coming for a while, you want to learn more about who we are as a church, our sort of uh, values and beliefs and how we operate, and uh, also, just it, we call it First Step because it's the first step towards understanding who we are and how you can be a part of it moving forward. So if you've never done that before, we do it the first Sunday of every month. And I know over the last several weeks, we've had so many new people. So I want to encourage you, uh, we're doing it today. Actually, right after this service from 12 to 1, we've got food, we've got childcare, all that's taken care of. You just show up, learn about who we are as a church. And I know it probably cuts into a little bit of the Vikings game. I'm not sure if they play at noon, but uh, I know the Vikings are going to win the Super Bowl this year. So I'm pumped about that. And, and I hear laughter, and that hurts a little. Um, but, uh, man, you, you, can, you can still catch the second half and learn about where we're going as a church, and we'd love to have you. So if you haven't done that before, uh, and you're kind of considering, like, what is this church all about? Like, behind the scenes, and what do they believe, and what are, the, what are their values, and how do they operate? This is the first step towards figuring that out, and we call it creatively first step. So we'd love to have you, even if you haven't registered yet, show up from 12 to 1 uh, right here in the building, or right over in our middle school room, and we would love to have you join us. All right, so today we're starting a brand new series called Identity. And the reason for this is because our identity is a really, really important part of who we are. The way that we see ourselves plays a big role in how we live our lives. The way that we see ourselves determines oftentimes the decisions that we make. And uh, if we have a distorted view of ourselves, if we don't see ourselves the way that God sees us, it can lead to all kinds of bad decisions and heartbreak and regret. And when you look back and you think about some of the decisions that you wish you hadn't made, some of the things that you wish you hadn't said, some of the regrets in your life, Oftentimes, it is because of the way that you see yourself determines how we behave. And the sooner that we can establish our identity, the sooner we can actually pursue our purpose for living. And so if we can see ourselves the way God sees us, then we can live our lives around the purpose for which we were created. And yet, really locking in our identity as human beings can be something very, very difficult. It's, it's something that we spend a, a significant portion of our life really trying to figure out really trying to determine. And, and when we're toddlers, our parents give us cute little labels, right? Like uh, just my little nicknames that kind of define who we are. Uh, oh, that's our little rug rat or a little cutie pie or uh, that, that's our little climber. You're like, why does Jason climb all the time? Well, you constantly introduce him as the little climber, right? Or for some of you, maybe it was demon child. I don't know. But studies have been done that show uh, that, uh, your, you know, your name or maybe your birth order, some of these things really uh, play into your identity because it affects the way that you see yourself and it affects the way then that you make decisions and it affects your behavior. And what's interesting about that is you didn't even choose your name, right? Your parents chose your name and they probably chose your name before you were born. They were probably pouring through a baby name book trying to figure out, okay, like they're doing like, okay, what sounds good with our last name? And they're doing the banana, banana, you know, bow, all that kind of thing and trying to figure out, okay, is it, are we going to accidentally swear, right? And, uh, they were figuring out, okay, what nicknames could possibly come off of this name that our kid could get made fun of for? And they're trying to figure out this name thing for you, and finally they establish a name. And studies show 
that your name can actually influence the way that you see yourself, influence your choice of career, where you live, the grades you get, who you marry, how many wedgies you get in middle school, all kinds of things. And I'm a little bit skeptical of some of that uh, in terms of how heavily weighted that is and in, in how your life turns out. But at the same time, there's a reason your parents didn't name you Adolf, right? Or, or Judas or Lucifer, right? There, there's a reason they didn't call you that. And, uh, if you look up the name Jeremiah, it actually means strong and handsome. So, uh, apparently my parents nailed it. And uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean that at all. But that would be awesome, right? I totally made that up. And then you go to school, and you go to school, and throughout elementary school, and middle school, and high school, you start to pick up different labels along the way, and they start to, some of those start to stick, and they, they start to impact the way that you see yourself. And so maybe you got the label of uh, the athletic one, or the chubby one, or the smart one, or the stupid one, or uh, the tall one, or the short one, and you got all these different labels, and it's, an, it's a complicated season in our life because we're trying to figure out who we are, and we're trying to figure out how we see ourselves. And then you get into high school and you get out of high school and your brain is continuing to develop and mature and, and all kinds of different, you know, uh, neuro pathways are being formed. And, and the way that you see yourself, again, takes on new layers. Maybe you start a career, you start a job, you go to college, maybe you get married, you start a family. All of these different labels start to play into how we see ourselves, and it impacts our identity. And so consequently, our identity oftentimes feels like this emotional roller coaster. So when I look at my own life, there's, there's different labels that I wear, and none of them make up the full identity of who I am. So I'm a man, but I'm also a husband, and I'm also a dad, but I'm also a pastor. I'm also a friend. I'm also a, uh, you know, bodybuilder and semi-professional basketball player. And uh, none of those are like my full identity. And so, over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this letter that the Apostle Peter writes to followers of Jesus living in the first century, and he reminds them exactly who they are. Because if you can remind somebody who they are, if you can, if you can help them lock in on what their identity is, it changes so much. When we see ourselves the way that God sees us, then it actually gives purpose to our life. And so Peter writes this letter. Now, who's Peter? Peter's this guy, and you read about him all through the life and teachings of Jesus. We have four different accounts of people who recorded the life and teachings and, and the death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And throughout these, we hear stories about this guy, Peter. And Peter is sometimes at the height, you know, he's the highest of highs and he's the lowest of lows. There's a point where, where Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, that has been revealed to you by God. And then you're reading like a few verses later. And, and Jesus says, I, I have to go and, and, and I'm going to be put to death. And, uh, you know, but I'm going to raise again in three days. And, and Peter's like, no, I, I will never let that happen. I, you, you will never be put to death. I mean, I will, I will stand with you. And, and Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, no, never, absolutely never. And then Jesus gets arrested, and what does Peter do? He's sitting around a campfire, and there's somebody asks him, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he's like, no, I never knew him. And then somebody else goes, no, 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 I'm pretty sure you're with him. He's like, no, 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 I, I, you're mistaking me for somebody else. And then a, like, like a, it says a young girl, right? So it's like, a, it's like a middle school girl. She's got like her lunchbox with her, and she's like, no, I'm pretty sure you're one of his guys. 
And he's like, I never knew him. And he's get all, you know, frustrated and he leaves Jesus in his hour of need. And so here you have Peter. He's just like, he loves Jesus. He's following Jesus. He's got the highest of highs. He's got the lowest of lows. And then uh, after Jesus rises from the dead, he goes to Peter and, and he, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. And again, it's, it, it, many scholars believe it was this way of Jesus restoring, saying, I recognize that even though you denied me three times, I'm restoring you. And so this is Peter. He's kind of all over the map. He's trying to figure out, who am I? And this letter that he writes much later on, he writes it before, somewhere around 63 to 65, AD 63 to 65. He's writing during the reign of Emperor Nero. And what happens is Peter, after Jesus rises from the dead, he gives this incredible talk. And about 3,000 people in Jerusalem put their faith in Jesus. And they said, well, Jesus is coming back soon, so we're just going to wait here in Jerusalem until Jesus comes back. And they thought soon meant like a few weeks. And they waited, and they waited, and pretty soon they ran out of money, and pretty soon a, a persecution began by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. We read about this. This is where the Apostle Paul, before he started following Jesus, was going out, and he was uh, deputized by the Pharisees to go and arrest followers of the way, followers of the way of Jesus. And so this persecution happens. And as you read through the book of Acts, you discover in Acts chapter 8 that all of the believers in Jerusalem, all of those who were following the way of Jesus in Jerusalem were scattered. And there was only, only the 12 disciples were left in Jerusalem. And now everyone is scattered. And now on top of that, not only is there this intense religious persecution coming from the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, but now Emperor Nero is also persecuting Christians. In fact, uh, this is written during the time of Nero, and this intense persecution by Nero. Nero was this guy who uh, was one of the worst emperors in Roman history. He killed his own mother. He had both of his wives killed. Uh, he burned the city of Rome. There's this famous fire, and historians tell us that uh, Nero actually started the fire and then blamed the Christians for it. And now he had a reason, and in a, in a, uh, he had room to build his palace by burning down some of the city, and then he blamed the Christians for it and started an, an even more intense persecution against Christians. And now, not only are they scattered from Jerusalem, but they're kicked out of Rome, and they're, they're living in different, um, different regions of the Roman Empire. And this is to whom Peter writes. He's writing to people who have been scattered. He's writing to people who are followers of the way of Jesus, but they're going through intensely difficult times, and they're scattered across these different provinces. And this is how he introduces this letter. He says, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so this letter is written to followers of Jesus scattered, and they're facing a very, very hostile world. And while he's writing specifically to those who are facing some serious trials in the first century, much of what he writes applies to us as followers of Jesus. Because what Peter is saying is, I want you to know who you are. I want you to know your identity so that when you face difficulty in this world, you know how to respond. And so this is all about how we see ourselves in relation to how we are to operate in the world. That's what he's doing. And so as we open up this series on identity, and we're going to go through the book of 1 Peter, this letter that Peter writes over the next several weeks, I want to look at four big ideas or four truths around identity. See, our identity is a really big deal because it oftentimes shapes how we behave. But unfortunately for many of us, what's happened is we actually look at the way that we have behaved and we allow it to shape our identity. 
We go, well, I've done something in the past, so that means I am a fill-in-the-blank. But here's what I want you to know. If you've lied in the past, it doesn't make your identity a liar. If you've stolen in the past, it doesn't make your identity a thief. If you've been addicted, it doesn't make your identity an addict. If you've been divorced, that's not your identity. If you've been successful, that's not your identity. What you've accumulated and acquired and achieved, that's not your identity. Those are all things that you have behaved, you know, choices that you've made. But that doesn't mean that is who you are. And unfortunately, oftentimes in this life, what we do is we make choices, we, we have behaviors, and we allow those behaviors to shape how we see ourselves. We allow the behavior to shape our identity. But your behavior should never shape your identity. Instead, here's what Peter writes, Jesus wants our identity to shape our behavior. Huge difference. Huge difference. Peter is reminding us, while our behavior should never shape or determine our identity, our identity should determine and shape our behavior. When we see who we are, when we recognize who we are created to be, then we live that out. This is huge because this is coming from the guy who denied Jesus three times when Jesus was in his greatest hour of need. And Peter says that that is not who he is. That is not his identity. His identity is found in something else, and it has now shaped the way that he lives his life. And so here's what he writes in these verses. He says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. God chose you. He knew you. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Peter starts off by telling us exactly who we are. You're chosen by God. You're created by God. God's spirit is making you more and more and more like him. We have been made right with God, and he's working on us to make us more like Jesus. Peter says then, as a result of understanding who we are, now we obey him. As a result of understanding that he loves us and that he's chosen us, now we simply live out that identity that comes from being a child of God, and our behavior can line up with who we're created to be. And if you don't know who you are, you're going to continually face frustration and discouragement and defeat because you'll be living in a way that doesn't match your identity. You'll be doing things you were never created to do. Have you ever tried to use something in a way that it was not designed to be used? Like, have you ever used a tool and you're like, this is not what this is used for, but it's the closest thing here, and you're trying to work with it, and it doesn't work? I could probably attach a book to the bottom of a pole and try to sweep the floor, but it's not going to work very well. Right? You could brush your teeth with scissors. It's not going to be helpful, right? If you run out of toilet paper, you could use duct tape. But again, very frustrating. And here's the reality. The reality is when you use something in a way that it wasn't created to be used, it's very frustrating and potentially even dangerous. And to use something to, to, to view ourselves in a way that God never intended for us to view ourselves, we end up pursuing things that God never intended for us to pursue. We end up finding our identity in things that God never intended us to find our identity in. And it's an incredibly frustrating way to live life. And so Peter wants us to understand our behavior is impacted by our identity, not the other way around. That your behavior shouldn't determine your identity. But once you understand who you are, that God loved you, that God chose you, now as a result of that, now we obey. Now our behavior reflects the identity that God's given us. And then he says this, our identity is in a someone, not a something. This is so critical for us to understand. As Peter continues this letter to followers of Jesus who are scattered across these northern provinces of uh, Europe, 
He wants to make sure that we know our hope, our identity, who we are, our security, it doesn't come from anything that's external. It doesn't come from anything that is outside of ourselves that we can accomplish, that we can achieve, that we can acquire, or that we can accumulate. Here's what he writes in these next verses. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. I'm going to pause there for a second. That means new birth means you have a new identity. You have a new birth certificate. Now, uh, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, I went to uh, get my real ID, which I can tell you this is a four or five visit process, just for those of you that were wondering. Uh, Because you never have the right documentation when you go the first time, and then they tell you another one. And so we're going through this with my daughter. I finally got mine, and I was telling my daughter, like, hey, we're going to go get your license. She had to get her license renewed. I'm like, but I just want you to know, it's probably not going to happen today. Just, I don't want to set you up for disappointment. Like, this is a two or three visit process, right? And, uh, and so I went there the first time, and I was like, I'm, I'm all excited. And I got, like, I, I'm like, I nailed this. I got everything. It's going to be a one-time visit. I'm going I'm to get this birth certificate, social security card. Well, what, else, what else do you guys need to determine? Like, I mean, I thought I was proof of my existence, but apparently not. And uh, I give them my social security card. They're like, you got everything here. It's great, except your social security card is laminated. I was like, Yeah. That's how they gave it to me at the hospital. They laminated things in the 80s, I guess. I don't know. They're like, we can't accept a laminated security card. And I was like, what? So I literally, they're like, you can bring in a W-2. And I was like, yeah, I don't have that with me. They're like, see you tomorrow. It's like, oh. So I came back the next day, and I was like, like, do you have an opening tomorrow? I I was able to get in. I came back the next day, and I was like, W-2, Social Security card. I brought everything back again. And they're they're literally like, yep, okay, sounds good. That's it. And I was like, ah, I think laminated would have been fine. My point is this. The other part of the documentation that I brought is my birth certificate. And my birth certificate is a piece of paper that says, this is who this person is. He claims to be Jeremiah Curran, born in 1980 in Muncie, Indiana. And this little document says that that is true. Some of you are just like, where the heck is Muncie, Indiana? Okay, hang with me. All right. But here's the reality. For us, Peter says this, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. In other words, you've got new documentation. You've got a new birth certificate. You've got a a new identity. This is now who you are. God says whatever, whatever your past was, whatever your behavior was that you think identifies you, we're wiping that slate clean. This is your new birth certificate. This identifies who you are. This identifies the day of your birth. You are born into a living hope. That's amazingly good news. He says... In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. He says, Jesus rose from the dead, so your hope is in a someone. You've been born into, you've been given a brand new birth into a living hope that isn't rooted in something, it's rooted in someone, and you know exactly uh, who you are, and you can have hope and confidence and security in someone when all of the some things in your life aren't going the way that you thought they should. That's such good news. You can remain secure even when facing difficult circumstances. Because your hope, your security, your identity isn't found in the some things that are out here that you hope will work out. 
but rather in the someone who overcame death. That means your hope is not based on your marital status. Your hope is not based on your financial status. Your hope isn't based on the stock market. Your hope isn't based in how the cryptocurrencies go. Right? Your, your hope isn't based on your physical health. Your hope isn't rooted in uh, what other people think of you. Your hope isn't rooted in whether or not this circumstance or that circumstance works out the way that you thought it would. And now you're disappointed. The truth is you find hope. You find security. You find identity in the someone who defeated death. Now, in the New Testament, the word hope shows up 71 times. One time before the resurrection of Jesus, 70 times after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it it doesn't take a genius to know where our hope comes from. It's from the one who overcame death. It's a living hope. And this is especially important for us to latch onto and remember because of what Peter tells us next. Because just like those in the first century, we live in a broken and sometimes hostile world. So here's what Peter tells them next. He First, he establishes their identity. It's, he, he, your, your, your identity will determine your behavior. And you have a living hope in someone. And then he says this, our identity provides context through trials. Peter says, this is why this is so important. Because what you're facing, you need to understand who you are or you're not going to get through it. It means that sometimes when we go through difficult seasons or we go through trials or we go through things that we can't get through, it's very tempting for us to ask this, God, why me? Why do I have to go through this? Why am I experiencing this? It would have been very easy for those living under Roman persecution to say, God, why do we have to go through this? We're trusting you. We're following you. And this is the result. This is what we're experiencing. This doesn't, this doesn't seem fair. And it's tempting for us to ask this same question when we face financial hardship when we face relational hardship, when we face marital difficulty, when we face seasons with our kids, when we face uh, isolation or depression, and we go through these difficult things, it's easy for us to go, okay, God, why am I experiencing this? Why am I going through this? And Peter reminds us we have a, a living hope that's rooted in the one who overcame death. And so he says this in the next verse. So in light of all that, in light of the fact that you have a new birth into a living hope, you have an inheritance waiting for you as a child of God, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. In other words, in light of the fact that our hope is in Jesus who overcame death, we have the ability to endure trials because we're looking at what comes beyond death. Because we have an eternal perspective. And sometimes your trials actually give you context to eternity. They give you a perspective to help you understand that there is more to this life than this life. In fact, here's a couple of things that our trials actually do. Our trials sometimes reveal our faith. Trials reveal our faith. Now, I want to be very, very clear. God never causes trials in your life. And sometimes, don't, don't ever believe that if you're going through something difficult, if you're going through something where uh, maybe you've lost a loved one, maybe uh, you've lost a job, maybe someone betrays you, and, and someone says to you because they mean well, and they say, well, you just got to trust God's plan. Can I just tell you something? It is never God's plan for you to go through difficult things. It's not, God isn't like, oh, I can't wait for these guys to just suffer. It's not, that's not how God works. We don't ever see that in Jesus. At the same time, God will use the difficulties. God will use the trials. God will use the, the, the hardships and the, and the seasons that we go through to strengthen us, to bring us closer to him. We live in a broken world. 
And sometimes, here's the reality, God doesn't cause these things. Sometimes we experience the consequences of sinful or unwise decisions that we make. We make sinful or unwise decisions. We experience the natural outcome of those decisions, and then we go, oh, God, how could you let me go through this? Other times, if we're being honest, we experience the fallout of other people's unwise or sometimes sinful decisions. It's not even your fault, but somebody else makes an unwise decision or a sinful decision, and because of your relationship with them, you are experiencing the fallout of their consequences. Other times, it's nobody's fault at all. It's just that we live in a broken world that doesn't work the way that it is designed to work because of sin. And so you have to know that God will always work through our trials. He doesn't cause them, but he will work through them because he's always working for our good. And so Peter says this in this next verse. He says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Peter says, you know how when they heat up gold, it actually, like, it changes the gold, and if there's any impurities in it, they're able to remove the impurities, and it actually refines the gold and makes it better? He says, trials are like that. It's intense, and it's like this intense heat, but at the end, it, it actually makes you better. And in many places around the world, if you claim to be a Christian... And here's what's amazing about this. Peter says, um, it tests your faith. It, it, it tests the sincerity of your faith if your faith is genuine, which means that it's possible that your faith could be disingenuous or not sincere or at the very least maybe not bearing any fruit. Because around the world, if you're a Christian, there's places around the world that you say, I, I wear that label, I'm a follower of Jesus, that you could actually lose your life for that. But in the United States of America, it's pretty easy to be a Christian. It's pretty easy to say, yeah, I I wear that label, and not have a genuine faith. And oftentimes, it's during trials that the the genuineness, the sincerity of someone's faith is revealed. Do I actually have hope in the one who has overcome death? Do I actually believe that there is more to this life than this life? Or am I caught up in what is temporary because I can't see past it? Because I don't I, I have this faith, but it hasn't, it hasn't gotten deep into my heart where it's bearing fruit and where I actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's the one who overcomes. In fact, Jesus himself gives us a few examples. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about a farmer who scatters seed. And it's, this is the message of Jesus. It's the good news of the message of Jesus. And he says it falls on these different soils. And he's explaining this to his disciples. He says these different soils represent the condition of our own hearts. And he says sometimes uh, it, it, the seed falls on the pathway and it gets stolen by the birds before it can ever even take root in the soil. Now, I, w- I would call that uh, an, an, a good example of an inherited faith. An inherited faith is, you know, when we grew up, uh, my parents were Catholic. My parents were Lutheran. They were Methodist. They were Presbyterian. They were Baptist. So I guess that's what I am. But it never really took root in your own heart. And so it's easy for that faith to be taken away because it was never actually yours. It never took root. That's, that's an example of an inherited faith. And Jesus said that can be taken away easily because it never actually got into your heart. In fact, I, if you're here and you're in high school, if you're watching you're in high school, maybe you... Maybe you look at your faith and you go, yeah, I don't know. My, my parents go to Westbridge, so that's what I am. I'm that Christian. Like, I don't, whatever you guys are, I'm that. And my challenge to you, my question to you is, what happens when you get out of high school? 
when you go to college, when you start your own family? Is this something that just gets taken away because it was never actually yours? Or is this your faith? Is it, is it getting into the soil of your heart and growing roots so that when difficulty comes, you're still going to be able to produce fruit? Another example, Jesus says, is that it falls on this shallow soil or the stony soil, the rocky soil. And so what happens is it takes root and it starts to grow, but because it's so shallow, uh, the, the roots don't go down deep enough. And when the, when the midday sun comes, it actually scorches it and it withers away because it didn't have deep roots in the soil. And, and sometimes, I, for some of us, that's this shallow faith. And it's like, oh, man, God, I love you. Thanks for the eternal life. This is awesome. And then all of a sudden, one season of difficulty or trial comes, and we go, I could never believe in a God who would allow dot, dot, dot. I could never believe in a God who would allow X, Y, Z. I just, I just can't do that. It's too much. And the first trial that comes in our life or difficulty, when the heat comes on, we stop bearing fruit. And then Jesus gives this other example. He says, there's this other soil. I'd call this conditional faith. This is, uh, you know, you have this inherited faith or a shallow faith. And then you have this conditional faith. And Jesus says it takes root and it starts to grow. But weeds and thorns start to grow up as well. And it starts to choke out whatever fruit is there. And Jesus says this is like those who, who are excited about the message initially. And it starts to take root in their heart. But then the cares of this life, the pursuit of wealth, uh, all of that starts to choke out what was actually growing. So for some of us, maybe we have a bit of a conditional faith that says, you know what, I got, I got, I got a lot going on right now. And I, and I love Jesus, and you know, me and Jesus, we're good, but also life is busy, you know, and, and I'll, I'll serve Jesus and I'll follow Jesus when it fits into my schedule and I'll fit him into the margins of my life, but I'm not going to build my life around it. And if that's where you're at, this is not a condemnation. This is not meant to make you feel guilty. It's simply to make you aware this is what Jesus taught. If that's where you're at, it's really only a matter of time before those things choke out and you stop bearing fruit. Because it never got deep into the soil of your heart. And here's what Peter is saying. I think Peter is sort of remembering some of this that Jesus taught. And he says, I want you to understand that when you're going through these difficulties, when you're going through these trials and these hardships, it can reveal the genuineness of your faith. It can show where your faith is at. And it's possible that you can get through this season and then you look back and you go, man, I, I was able to endure and now I realize that that message of the good news of Jesus has actually sunk deeper into my heart than I ever thought it would. And so this is important for us to understand that, that trials can actually reveal where we're at. And if you find yourself going, you know what, I realize maybe my faith is inherited or maybe it's shallow or maybe it's somewhat conditional. That's a good moment where God's spirit is speaking to you saying, God wants something more for you. God wants the, the message of his good news and his love to go so deep into your heart that it grows and produces fruit in your life. But then here's what else he says. Trials make us stronger. See, uh, in high school, uh, I played a couple sports. I played tennis. I played basketball. You probably read about me. It's fine. Uh, I remember the first day coming back in the fall every year uh, after not running or conditioning like I should have in the summer. 
And the first practice back every year was the worst because we'd always run and the coaches knew that we were out of shape. And so they would just run us to death, right? The first practice. And so you're just like, ah, you're running killers back and forth up and down the court, right? Halfway through, stop, throw up, get back out there, run some more. It was awful. And then, uh, you'd get through that first practice and it was like, all right, the next practice wasn't quite so bad. And then the next practice, not so bad. And pretty soon you're getting stronger. That's the point of practice, right? You're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And you knew you could make it through the next practice and then you'd be stronger for the games. And here's what Peter writes in the next section of this verse. He says, when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. He says, look, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to test and sort of reveal where your faith is at. But when you're able to endure, it's going to continue to make you stronger and stronger and stronger. And when you go through trials and difficulties, because you truly understand who you are and whose you are, then you're able to see past the temporary struggles. And you're able to have an anchor in eternity. He says, so these, these struggles, these hardships that you face, your identity, when you know who you are, it gives you perspective. It gives you context through these difficult situations. And finally, he says this, number four, obedience produces deep joy. So he starts off. He starts off this whole letter, and in verse two, he says, God's chosen us. God has, uh, he knew us, he's chosen us, and his spirit is making us more and more like him. And now, as a result of that, we obey. As a result of knowing who we are, now we know how to live. And now he brings that idea full full circle. He says, when you know who you are, when you know who God created you to be, when you recognize that you have a living hope that's in someone who is alive and not in the some things of this world, then you can go through trials and you can still experience this incredible joy because you live your life in such a way that is in alignment with the one who created you and the one who loves you. So here's what he writes in these next verses. He says, you love him even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. Trust is a, is a faith term, but when we talk about faith, oftentimes we talk about it as a transaction. Like, God, I acknowledge that you exist, now you give me eternal life, right? And, and that isn't what the authors of the New Testament meant at all. When they talk about faith, they talk about it not in transactional terms, but in relational terms. God, I trust you. I believe that you are who you said you are and that you will do what you said you will do even if it's not in my lifetime. So I'm going to live life your way because I trust you. So that's what Peter says. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, which means you obey him. You follow his way of living life. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. It's all so wonderful. Even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. There's this incredible partnership where God rescues us from our sin. That is free. It costs you nothing. It costs you absolutely nothing. God in his grace says, I'm going to send Jesus into this world and it will cost you nothing. And you can't earn your way into it even if you tried. You can't behave your way into it even if you tried. It's simply who God is because he created us and he loves us and he wants us to exist eternally with him. But then there is our response to this free gift of God's grace. And that is that we go, okay, God, I trust you. Since you're doing that for me and you've, you've declared that I'm your son, I'm your daughter, now I, I'm going to trust that that is who I am and I'm going to live that out. I'm going to obey your way of living life. And when we follow Jesus' way of living life, here's the rub. Sometimes it will cost you something. Sometimes you have to say no to you in order to say yes to Jesus. 
Sometimes doing things Jesus' way will actually put you at odds with the way that the world operates. And somewhere along the way, it will cost you. God's grace is free. It costs you nothing. Following Jesus at some point will probably cost you something. But that's the partnership that we have with God. And sometimes uh, throughout this letter, Peter is reminding us our identity isn't found in the somethings in this world. Rather, it's found in the eternal someone of Jesus who gave his life for us and overcame death so that we could be a part of his family forever. And if we will decide to trust in that message and align our lives around the grace that has already been extended to us, Peter says the result is a joy that is unable to be fully expressed in words. It will become in you like a, like a, a bubbling spring of life that you can't even ex- fully explain to people. But that is the result of living the identity that God says that you are. When you trust who God says you are, you're able to live the life that God wants you to live. And that means that when we face trials, we can endure because our hope isn't found specifically in the resolution to one specific situation. Our hope is found in the one who has overcome death. Our identity then is not locked into where we live, what we do for work, what we drive, how much money we have, what grades we get, who our friends are. Our identity, our identity is a child of God. We know who we are because we know whose we are. Our past behavior should never determine our identity. You are not what you've done, but our identity, who God has created us to be, should determine how we live. It should determine our behavior. When I know who I am and whose I am, then I should live that out each and every day. Now, that might feel a little bit oversimplistic. You say, okay, because God loves me, because God created me, I can get through trials. Okay, got it. But here's the reality. It's so important that we remind ourselves who we are and whose we are because it is so easy in the day-to-day living to forget. And every single day we have an enemy who is constantly trying to distort our identity. You say, okay, what is this enemy? The scriptures talk about Satan and maybe when you think about this, it, it brings you right back to like Halloween during your childhood and you see a guy with pointy horns and a pitchfork, right? Wearing a red costume and a pointed tail. But what's fascinating is Jesus, uh, Paul, Peter, the authors of the New Testament talk about this enemy. They talk about Satan, but they talk about him specifically in terms of deception and accusation. That this is one who deceives us and one who accuses us. One who constantly tries to distort things. He can't create anything, but he can try to distort what God has already created. And so God creates music and Satan distorts it. And God creates relationships and Satan distorts them. And God creates sex and Satan distorts it. And God creates animals and Satan tries to distort them, right? It's where we get cats. And (laughs) this enemy, sorry cat lovers, this enemy is working overtime to accuse you and to deceive you into seeing yourself in a way that isn't how God sees you. Because if, if, you can, if, if he can somehow get you to see yourself in a way that God didn't create you, then he can get you to live in a way that God doesn't want you to live. But you've been given a new birth into a living hope in Jesus. And so he wants you to feel like your identity, this enemy wants to accuse you and make you feel like your identity is rooted in your past behavior. Hey, you know what? Remember, that? Remember when you did this? Remember when you said that? This is who you are. You're not going to measure up to God. You're not going to measure up. God's not going to love you. God's not going to adopt you, make you his son, make you his daughter. Look at what you've done. And that's why Peter starts off this letter and reminds us, this is who you are. Before you ever did any of that, God knew you. God chose you. You are his son. You are his daughter. Now, get busy living a life 
that matches up with who God says that you are, who God has created you to be. And my prayer for us today is that we would see ourselves, that God would give us the clarity to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Because when we see ourselves the way that God sees us, we'll live the way that God wants us to live. And if you're here and you'd say this, there's, I think there's a couple, few groups of us here. Some of us would say this, you know what? I've never... Uh, I've never said yes to Jesus. I, I, I always thought that I was kind of out because there's enough bad in my past that I could never do enough good to sort of tip the scales. If that's you, I want you to know that's the good news of the message of Jesus is there's nothing you do to earn your way into it. It's who God is. He has invited you to be a part of his family. And before, before you were born, God knew you. God chose you to be a part of his family. If you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to give you that opportunity. But I think there's some of us here who would also say this. I think my faith might be inherited. Like, I, I don't know that my faith would stand on its own two legs. I don't know that I could actually, my life is actually bearing fruit because I trust in Jesus as much as just my parents go here or this is just tr- the tradition or maybe you'd say my, my faith is a little shallow. Like, things are going good, but if something bad hits, I don't know if I'd continue to follow Jesus. Or maybe you'd say my faith is somewhat conditional. Like when it works out, you know, it's great, but I'm not building my life around it. And I recognize if this is who I am, that I've been born into a living hope, and this is who God created me to be, that I actually want to build my life around that. And maybe you'd say, you know, as as you're walking through these different soils, God's spirit really kind of poked at my heart. And I recognize I want, to, I want to make a commitment to actually live out who God created me to be. I want to follow Jesus. I want to trust him more. And maybe that's you. And as we pray here, as we close, you just say, man, God, I'm in. I want to follow you. I want to make that commitment to give you the steering wheel of my life and fully follow you. I want my life to bear fruit. And so together as we pray, wherever you find yourself, just agree with this prayer as we close. God, there are some of us here today who would pray this. Please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I thank you that you never walked away from me. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me as I identify, as I, as I recognize who you've created me to be. Help me to now live that out. Help me to trust you and to follow your way of living life as best as I know how. And then, God, I pray for those of us who would say, you know what? My faith is maybe inherited. That I want it to go deep down into the soil of my heart. Or my faith is a little bit shallow, and when difficult times come, I'm tempted to, to just walk away. Or my faith is a little conditional, and it fits into my schedule and the margins of my schedule, but God, I want to now build my life around you. I trust you. Help me to build my life around you. And God, for all of us, that's our prayer. And so this week, we commit to you. Help us to fully follow you, to trust you, and may we see ourselves the way that you see us so that we can live life the way you want us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.